We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. We cannot be stopped, we cannot be resisted. Good day, Tractor Time listeners. Thank you for joining us today and tuning in. My name is Ryan Slaba. I'm the host of Tractor Time Podcast and with Acres USA. Uh, so happy to be here. Yes, we did take some time off. Uh, we've been busy. We helped uh, the state of Colorado launch a uh, brand new soil health program uh, here in our backyard. We also uh, have a new book. We're about ready to get it out there. We've got, uh, we had three events in August in three different time zones. So yeah, we've been uh, busy and getting the work done, but we're so glad to be back in this chair and reconnecting with our Tractor Time listeners. Today's guests, David Montgomery and Ann Bickley, they're authors, they're speakers, they're advocates for soil health. They have a new book out called What Your Food Ate that really helps connect the dots between the science and the soil health and the human health side of things. We'll get into those details in the interview today. I'm joined today by Sarah DeLevesque. She is uh, our director of events here at Acres USA. She's also the founder of BGI and RFSI. They're, they're companies that help support different aspects of the regenerative ag movement. And we're so happy to have her on board today uh, to pick up all my slack and cover all the rust from having not recorded one of these in a while. So uh, I'm sure you're already here in the rust show a bit. Uh, last, a uh, couple other announcements. Uh, with their book out. You can save 10% at bookstore.acresusa.com. Use the code POD22. Uh, POD22. Go ahead and shop while you're listening to this podcast. Go and pick up the book. Uh, again, you can go to bookstore.acresusa.com and use the code POD22. Secondly, this is sponsored, so we really appreciate you supporting our sponsor, C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm, homestead, and ranch with over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance. C90 remineralizes soil, increases plant quality and nutrient density, and elevates the health and wellness of your animals. Discovered by one of our favorites, Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets the standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Created in the pristine Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit c-90.com to learn more about how their ocean mineral program can restore performance and reduce your input costs. That's sea-90.com. That's sea-90.com. Check them out. They're in like 200 tractor supply locations in the Great Plains in the Midwest. They're everywhere. Uh, connect with their network. Give them a call. And please make sure you mention the uh, that Tractor Time sent you when you connect with them. So thank you, C90, for making this podcast happen. Whew. All right. I think that gets through our major announcements today. So uh, we're going to move into the program. Uh, special thanks again to David Montgomery and Ann Bickley. Uh, David is a geologist and uh, winner of the MacArthur Genius Prize and Award for his book, Dirt, uh, History of Civilizations. He uh, co-wrote the book, Hidden Half of Nature with Ann Bickley. She's a bi biologist. They really discovered the life of microbiology in their gardens, and that sent them on a long spiral, uh, upward spiral, we'd like to say, uh, to connect with the regenerative ag movement and publish their latest book, again, called What Your Food Ate. Uh, we're going to get into the interview next. Sarah DeLevesque is going to get us started. So thank you again for joining us. 
This is Sarah De Levesque of Acres USA, and I'm excited that we're talking today with David Montgomery and Anne Bicklay, authors of a trilogy of books about soil health, microbiomes, and farming. I'd love to get us started today by asking you both about your fourth and latest book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. Can you tell us a little bit about it, uh, who it's for, and how it's being received out there? Go for it. Me? Oh, okay. I'll, I'll start. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a logical extension of the books we were writing before in terms of looking at the way that how people treat the land affects the way the land treats people. This sort of the last piece that we hadn't really wrestled full on with was what healthy soil means for human health. And so we're trying to connect the dots between soil health, crop health, animal health, and human health, the kind of you know rubric that Jay Rodale laid out you know decades ago and review some of the new science of the last 80 years that really connects those dots pretty compellingly. Um, so it's a book, you know, I, I like to think it's a book for anybody involved in farming or anybody who eats or involved in, in, involved in policy. It's what we all should know about why the way we grow our food, why we raise our livestock, how we, why, how we raise our crops ends up mattering for human health. Now, there's obviously a lot of other things that matter for human health, too. You know, our genes, our diet, what we choose to eat. Um, but what your food ate belongs on the list. So that's what we're really trying to do with the book. Um, and it was a fun one to research. It took longer than I think either Anne or I thought to actually pull it all together. We read something like a thousand peer-reviewed papers to try and pull the science together to, um, uh, to put it all into focus. But, you know, it's done now and we think it was worth doing and we're, we're eager to share it with the world. We like the reviews we've had from people whose opinions we think matter. I, I appreciate the effort. Yeah, you guys take to do this because it seems like, you know, we couldn't have written this book you know, a while ago. And, and I know Sarah's going to get into that uh, in a bit and get into the human health side. Um, but, I, you know, when you guys were talking about the research, one of the things I really liked was the case studies you guys built into this, the amount of farmers you brought into the book overall, that sometimes when we talk about the science of soil health, we forget that last mile, right? The people who actually have to implement this and put this into practice. And so uh, just kind of wanted you to talk about what were the commonalities that you found out there within the farmers that you talked to, both on the uh, practicing side, but more importantly, I think on the mindset side, kind of how are they approaching this overall and, uh, and differences too, I'm definitely curious about. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I don't know that I totally agree with Dave that it was like a lot of fun to research this book. I will say what was a lot of fun though, <laughs> um, was getting out to farms and meeting these farmers and seeing uh, the farm itself and then the landscapes that, you know, these particular farms were set in. And you asked about kind of mindset, Ryan, and I would have to say that every farm that we visited, you know, almost immediately, you know, as soon as we get out of the car, we're, we're running over to take a look at some bed or the soil. And then the farmer's telling us, you know, well, this is what I do. And these are my practices. And so it, it was very much kind of a, a process of, um, meeting with these farmers and sort of understanding their take on their particular farm. Cause, and we sort of went to, you know, different end members, um, at least in, in terms of these two no-till vegetable farms, you know, one is in drought stricken California. The other one is in, um, you know, I don't think they flooded this year, but it's in Connecticut. So like, you know, we're talking water is not a problem there. And, 
e- each of these farmers um, really, really focused on uh, managing their organic matter. I would have to say I haven't seen um, a- any other farmers so on top of their organic matter game. And they they each did no-till, but they did it in different ways. And to me, that was uh, really fascinating that they had been able to figure out you know, what do you do in a place where you don't have enough water? How do you do no-till? And what do you do in a place that has a lot of water? What, how, how are you, you know, basically minimizing soil um, disruption so that you're getting this robust, super functional conversation between crops and the soil microbiome. So they, they had it figured out and um, they were busy beavers. I'm really grateful that, you know, we were able to kind of drop in in the middle of their season, you know, this was in the summertime when we visited. And um, I always like farmers who are amenable to, you know, nosy writers coming around and asking them a lot of questions. And then of course the gardener wants her hands in the soil and, you know, so um, it was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. Well, you know, I, I think the biggest commonality I would draw through to not just them, but some of the other farmers we've interviewed in, in some of the previous books, but the ones who are really successful um, at rebuilding the fertility of their land, um, and the profitability of their farms as a consequence of that, they thought about the soil differently than a conventional farmer. They really focused on feeding the soil and the health of the soil was sort of the forefront of how they tinkered with their practices and adapted them to their farm and how they really thought about it. So the biggest commonality, I I think, are the sort of twofold, um, how they thought about the soil as an integral foundation that they needed to feed, that it was a living ecosystem that they needed to care for, and that they were tinkerers. They sort of tried different things to figure out what would work. They weren't following. They had a plan, but not a recipe. Yeah. And I did have one follow-up to that. And I was wondering, in that recipe, that's what I was really curious about is, you know, each farmer's recipe is going to be really unique. And that's one of the things that we've we've talked about, which is really hard, uh, perhaps uh, a good entryway into the discussion, but really hard in an implementation side to, uh, to to really explain what we're talking about. And so, so I wondered, uh, that was my follow-up to you guys was, you know, did you feel like, uh, is that a possibility, you know, in the end that, and when you wrote the book, you know, how much did you pay attention to how much you were writing practices into it uh, versus, you know, results or other goals? Well, I mean, I think we tried to sort of hit on all of that because we were trying to connect up, you know, well, the, you know, the fundamental question in the book that we were, wanting to answer, and I think we did answer this, is do farming practices matter for what gets into the plant and animal foods that make it into the human diet? And yes, definitely farming practices matter, at least from our point of view. And so when you ask about practices and results, you know, in in pouring over the research and in, we also did a, a small little, um, sort of experiment with comparing regeneratively grown crops with conventional crops and looking at nutrient quality and so forth. But we're very much, you know, the results, um, at least on that, and, you know, it was a small sample size. It was telling us, like, these results came from these practices. And that that is something that, you know, it, it's hard to nail down in all cases, because farming practices like I said, these two no-till vegetable farmers, they had the same, I like how, um, I think Dave just said that, uh, you, they had a plan, but they had, you know, different recipes. And 
yet the outcome was the same. They had, uh, you know, good nutrient density in their crops, at least compared to conventional counterparts that were, uh, you know, right there, same soil type, same conditions and so on. So I think that, you know, pretty much whenever you're looking at, at what are farmers doing and how does that translate into differences in food, you can say, yes, that does. That's what we saw. And what I like to think of it in the sense that the, um, if you look at how, you know, exercise affects human health, you know, we all sort of know that, you know, more exercise is probably better, but there, and so that's sort of a plan uh, if one wants to help improve oneself, but in terms of the actual practices, well, you can swim, you can play tennis, you can play pickleball or whatever that thing's called. <laughs> um, you know, there's lots of different ways to actually get exercise that you can adapt to your own lifestyle and where you live, and what you have access to. And I can tend to think of farming practices as that similar kind of, of difference where there's some broad principles like to get more exercise, and that could be minimize the physical and chemical disturbance of the soil because you're trying to foster an underground ecosystem provide it with organic matter because that's the fuel that drives the underground ecosystem and then grow a diversity of things on the land whether that's in your cash crops or your cover crops and so that you're not always growing the same stuff year after year because that just sets the table for pests and pathogens so those are some general broad level principles but the actual practices that an individual farmer would use are going to really depend on their context where they're at just like you know how um you know ann and i don't get exercise the same way I love that. That's that's a great comparison. And again, tying in that human health with our human exercise too. Uh, I want to dig into the human health side of things just a little bit more, uh, because what we found when we talked to farmers and others in the regenerative ag space, uh, we often hear that human health and nutrition is a driving force for their own transition uh, to using these practices. Um, yet, uh, there's still so much more to learn about what the actual connection is between agricultural practices, nutrient density, and human health. Um, so your work this year, especially with the, the paper you published and with this book, is playing a big role in moving this forward. But what else and who else do you think is needed to advance this understanding? Well, I mean, one of the reasons we did that uh, that study that that um, came out last year, where we compared sort of ten paired regenerative conventional farms, is that in doing all the research that we did and reading those thousand research papers, we couldn't find the study that did that, um, and so we kind of had to go do a preliminary study ourselves. And it's a small study because you know we're not at an ag school, uh, we're not set up for that, um, but we wanted to know the answer. Um, and what we did in the, the the other part of the research end of this was look into essentially how you would connect the dots. What are the mechanisms through which how we treat the land affects what gets into crops? And there's a couple key ones that get right at the heart of conventional agriculture in terms of tillage and the overuse of nitrogen for synthetic soluble nitrogen fertilizers and the overuse of agrochemicals like herbicides, for example. Um, and there's lots of studies that connect that to changes in soil life. And there's studies that connect uh, what soil life does in terms of provisioning mineral micronutrients for crops, which are how they get into the, the biological world and that's into our food chain, um, and how the way that soil life uh, affects the way that plants produce what are called phytochemicals, plant-made chemicals, which they make for their own purposes, but the, the, the medical literature connects that when they get into our bodies, they we know them more as, as things like antioxidants or anti-inflammatories, things that actually are good for our health. So in sort of tracing all those individual connections, you can you can put together the science like beads on a string to go from soil health to human health, but it's really hard to go straight from soil health directly to human health. Um, 
And so there's sort of different ways to try and piece that together and triangulate it. What, you know, part of what we need are more very well-designed studies to try and look at some of those pieces, but also to connect, you know, right across. Um, it would be nice to have some uh, expansion of the kind of data sets that we put together uh, to as our preliminary research and backing up the book. Um, and um, there's just a lot that could be done and that needs to be done. Um, there's lots of different practices to think about in terms of how do they actually influence soil life in ways that affects either mineral micronutrients or vitamins, the other kind of micronutrients, compounds that are not really recognized yet as, as nutrients, but that have positive beneficial effects on human health, lots of different phytochemicals. What's the role of different soil communities and how we disturb them with practices? I mean, you, you pick up a random sample of soil off a farm field anywhere in North America, and a really good microbiologist will probably only be able to tell you about half the species that are in it. If that. If that. If that. So there's still a lot of unknowns, but I think we're at the point where we can kind of triangulate the kinds of practices that will move us towards growing better food that would better support human health. Even if it's really hard to say, well, if you eat three carrots from this farm, you're going to drop your blood sugar by that much kind of a, you know, specificity. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think you've probably mentioned these already, but just a quick follow-up, you know, based on all the research you've done for the book and that paper, like what, for our audience, what uh, practices would you say were the top ones that we should look at first, that the next research should focus on? The low-hanging fruit, if you will. Um, I, I would say that the sort of more research on the full system of minimal disturbance, both chemical and physical, you know, integration of, you know, cover crops or year-round co ground cover, and the... Um, and the role of diversity. So it's a systems level look at things. Um, and that's, I think there's more research needed on that at a systems level in both crop production and livestock production, and also on the innovative farms that are reintegrating the two. Um, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done with that, even though it looks like the broad outline of the practices that would improve soil health are kind of already known. We kind of know the direction, I think, that, that we need to go to through or towards, um, you know, the guiding star of soil health, I think really is the right answer. Um, but how you would do that specifically and what you might expect as a net benefit over what time scale for a certain practice in a given area, that's still very uncertain. Yeah, I, I guess I would just add to that too, that we, the more we, you know, decide to go down rabbit holes and look at sort of any one uh, nutrient, whether that's a, a, a nutrient for a plant or a nutrient for an animal, we kind of lose sight of, of what we're really after, I think, with soil health or whatever name you want to call a farming system that as a consequence of the practices, the functioning and health of the soil just gets better and better. And, and I really like this sort of notion of um, thinking about soil as having um, biotic integrity. And so what we're really after is putting the natural and physical processes back in place that, that you know, a soil used to have. And those, those processes and the actual players behind them um, are different everywhere. But if we can start thinking about, that's right, we want to start setting up these processes that, that, are how plants um, take up water, how plants take up nutrients, how an animal's microbiome works, what, what does a functioning bovine microbiome you know, actually do for the animal. We then don't need to go down into all these rabbit holes because we've set up you know, kind of a, 
a world where we understand that's right, we're aiming bigger, we're aiming to get a process back in place because once the process is in place, the outcome that we're after, you know, that that comes right along after it. Great. Perfect. Yeah, no, I, 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 Sarah, I'm thinking of the uh, poster that was hanging in Gary uh, Zimmer's bar in the summer when we did an event there that said, you know, teach them, teach a farmer the why and they'll learn the how. And, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of what you guys just summarized was that, uh, that idea uh, very well. So, you know, and that's, and that's really sort of how I think we look back at the full series of books that's culminated in What Your Food Ate is that we're kind of why people. We want to know how stuff works. And, you know, we, uh, when we wrote uh, The Hidden Half of Nature together a few years back, it, it ended up changing our diet. We changed our diet again in writing the current book. But, you know, part of the reason that it changed our diet when we looked into the, the microbiome and what, how to sort of support and care for our own uh, microbiome uh, was that I finally understood why my doctor always told me to eat more fiber. You know, someone just telling me to do something doesn't cut it. Um, I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> but when you understand why, you can get much more motivated to actually make a change. So I think that Ann and I view part of our role in looking at all this stuff is, you know, to, to synthesize the research, to pull it all together, to maybe poke the boundaries of that a little further. Um, but also to basically help explain to explain why connecting those dots matters and, and the science behind the why in ways that you don't have to have a PhD in soil science to understand. Um, we put a lot of time into trying to make this stuff accessible because I think the why is important for people to understand. Well, seeing that as you two are folks who have researched the why quite a bit, um, I'm, I have to ask, I'm curious, how have you changed your diet uh, based on writing this book? Uh. I, I think in the biggest, you know, I guess if the hidden half got us focused on phytochemicals and fiber and how our microbiome, you know, transforms those things. And, you know, that's pretty much their diet. That's the diet, at least that you want them to have an abundance of this book, what your food ate really allowed us to see how important fats are in the human diet and how, and, and most fats are coming from um, animal foods. And so it really opened our eyes to why the diet of an animal is so important to a person who is eating animal foods. And, and I'm sure your, your, your audience knows much of this already. And, um, and so I will say this though, I would really like for all of us to think, um, think of a new name somehow, you know, I'm always trying to like upend the apple cart somewhere. So <laughs> at one point, at one point it was like, I really don't like farmers calling, uh, plant stuff left on their fields residue. That's like icky stuff in the corner. Okay. So I'm still on that, that bandwagon. I haven't, haven't got very far on that one, but in this regard, back to uh, fats and animals, I'd like us to think about something, you know, more than, you know, grass fed implies to a person who may not understand um, all of this. Instantly, I think what comes to mind is cows out on some pasture that is literally grass and only grass. And I like, I think pasture fed gets, does a better job of getting at what, um, why an animal's diet is so important to fat balance and fat type. But I'd, I'd really like us to kind of move to 
And this will never fly, but somehow some smart person out there can incorporate uh, both sort of the diversity of plants out in that pasture and the diversity of phytochemicals in those plants and how those two things, phytochemicals and diversity of plants, that comes about as a result of how that pasture is being managed and if it's being managed for um, for soil health. So somehow, you know, because sometimes people will ask us, I don't really get the connection between soil health and, and animal health. I mean, obviously, if you're feeding a cow stuff like corn and soy, then it's like easier to see that. But if you're talking about pasture fed, um, that pasture is, you know, it is a crop in a sense. And so what is a farmer how minimal is the disturbance out there? Is it getting plowed up every year? Are there um, chemical uh, perturbations happening and so on? So anyway, back to the fat thing in our diet, we we now, you know, pretty much 100% are going for animal products that are, okay, I'll have to say it, grass fed. I. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, I I love to take friends who are exploring this subject, uh, buy a pasture with cattle on it and point at it and say, hey, look, there's some plant-based meat. And uh, <laughs> right, because that's kind of the, the idea, right? And and really just to get at the elephant in the room, when you titled your book, you know, what your food aid, it, you know, that's what I immediately thought of. You know, it's like we're we're gonna start educating people on the differences between, you know, what what, what plant-based meat really is. And that that's really what cattle are doing in the most healthy environments is turning uh, biodiverse plants, uh, healthy grown plants into, into meat that we're digesting. So I wondered, I always know how much thought goes into the title of the book and how much uh, back and forth goes, uh, you know, how much was that a part of it or, or was I totally off, you know, uh, uh, for where you guys are coming from? I mean, that, that was part of it. I mean, a lot of what I think we were trying to focus people on in the book is to think about not just livestock as having a diet that matters, but that crops have a diet that matters. And the soil itself has a diet that matters. We all know that our diet matters, but we're trying to get people to think a couple steps back in the food chain and how all the stuff that gets into us got into the things that are feeding us. Um, and the livestock connection is a big is a big piece of that because it's it's so clear about the the effect and difference on the the fat balance, particularly omega three and omega six fats, which are really central to the way our immune system functions. And the, the um, you want more with omega threes, and that's what you get from the diverse pasture fed uh, animals that I would not call grass fed because an animal kicked me under the table here, um, but. The, you know, the, I think that one of the big things that gets left off the table all too often when people talk about, you know, plant-based diets versus uh, animal products in the diet is thinking about, you know, maybe the first question anybody uh, eating things should be asking is, um, you know, beyond what they're choosing to eat is how is it grown? Because a, a plant-based diet that's grown with practices that destroy the land is not sustainable, period, full stop. And that's kind of the the kind of studies that Ann and I got into when we started working on this, because I'm a geologist, was working on you know the effect of erosion on past civilizations. And there's a lot of examples of societies that destroyed their land um, in the pre um, pre agribusiness days uh, with practices you know that that don't look too bad in some ways by modern standards in terms of soil health, but that still degraded the land over time. Um, and so I think that we really ought to be thinking, what we're really trying to focus on in the title is to get people thinking about 
um, you know, how their food was raised and both from their health standpoint and also from an environmental standpoint, the health of the planet, if we think in sort of a big picture and the health of the soil, if we think on sort of a local picture in terms of individual farms. In terms of the, I forget how many titles we went through before we ended up with that. It definitely wasn't the first. We go back and forth on this. It's kind of like the cover of a book, right? It basically goes through iterations until you land on one where either you go, oh, that's it, um, or you just give up. Um, <laughs> and I think both of us really liked What Your Food Ate when we came up with it. Um, we started out, I think, with What You Are, What Your Food Ate, and we're like, no, no, shorten it. it. Yeah, it was too, you know, that's sort of the problem with being writers, and there's all these words around that you can use. And so it's like, well, let's pack all the words in the title. And it's like, fortunately, you're a writer, and you're like, that is really bad. Throw that away and start over. So so that's what, so that's what we did, and it's uh, it also... When people ask us about the book, it's just easy to say what your food ate. It explains itself to a certain extent, but then, you know, we can elaborate on that. And it's because we, it, it's also useful to use things that, of course, everybody does. We all eat. And so it's not a stretch at all to think about, we understand animals eat, our dogs and our cats eat. I, I like talking with people about what microbes eat and what soil eats and what plants eat that then is sort of the opportunity to expand um expand minds and and uh impart people with sort of like here's here's what's really going on and what we need to be thinking about in farming um and human health well let's go down there. i mean I, i'd love to spend an hour talking about the fake meat but i won't put you guys through that torture uh so let's talk about the uh you know that that soil life uh rhizosphere world that we're rapidly discovering and we're understanding and we're able to now classify microbial life into jobs and duties. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, aren't really aware of how much progress is being made there. So I wondered if you could kind of summarize what you are seeing happening at that and even give a little story of, you know, what is happening at that rhizosphere level. I don't know if a lot of people think of plants as eating, if that makes yeah. sense. But what does that mean? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting, I, th I think if you explain to somebody, you just sort of start off with, well, let's think about this. So you've got a ruminant, it's got legs, it can move around, it can choose and it can select. And we on our two legs can roam through a grocery store and get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. But when it comes to the botanical world, these organisms, right? These green bodies are stuck in place. And what that means is a completely different lifestyle. And, and when it comes to kind of getting people to see what's happening, and, and we talked a little bit about this in The Hidden Half of Nature, but the digestive plant kind of does have a digestive system. It's not, you know, a mouth and a stomach and things like that, but it is a digestive system and it is in part uh, a part of the soil. And this is the other reason I, I always like to sort of emphasize the diet of the soil, because none of us would pick up, you know, some jug of, um, okay, maybe a jug of moonshine, but I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I mean, the kind of jugs and buckets and stuff that you can find at an ag store or a garden nursery center. We would never think about putting that in our bodies. And, and so when you talk about plants and their digestive system, it's really helpful to understand that their bodies are just as sensitive to what we put in the soil as what it is we might choose to put, you know, in a glass or on a plate and um, drink or eat it. 
And where much of this activity, this, this digestion is happening is in this, this halo-like zone all around the root system of a plant. And we know that root systems are can easily, depending on the actual plant, they can exceed the canopy of of a given plant, whether that's a, you know, a grapevine or an orchard tree or a corn plant, you know, two to three to four times. And so all of these microbial communities that are in that rhizosphere, it's not, the rhizosphere is just this little nanometer outline. You can picture it that way around the root system, but it's, it's really sort of like the coral reef of, um, of the soil. I mean, it's that diverse, it's that active, it's, kind of mind boggling to think of all the things that are going on there. And, and that takes me back just to this whole idea that we want the rhizosphere to be functioning. It's a biological bazaar. And so we needn't know every single organism that's there and what they're doing, because by the time we figure that out, somebody's died, somebody's been born, somebody's been eaten, somebody's died, you know, so it's just, it's way too much to track, but we want a really vibrant, um, fully functional, nobody's, nobody's missing and nobody's there who shouldn't be there kind of a, kind of a place. And when all this is happening down there in the soil, it, it, it means that crops in particular are, um, their bodies are suffused with levels and types of phytochemicals that we want. They're either pulling in uh, mineral mineral micronutrients or their green bodies are making the vitamins that we need. And then even more important, and this is where a lot of the new science is, is that we, we think about nutrients as, you know, purely these things that plants take up that are, um, you know, things like iron and zinc, but equally important are they plants, as we know, they're pushing exudates out into the soil. And these are plant-made compounds that the microbes are feasting on. And they're not only feasting on them, they're also transforming these compounds and molecules into different, what we call microbial metabolites. And the plant says, great, thank you very much. I've been dying to get you know some of this growth hormone. I've been trying to get that bit of intelligence about the pathogens that you know, my neighbor plants are telling me are somewhere out there, but now I know, you know, they're right here. So we, in my mind, nutrients are just, they're dense with like what we think of as nutrition, but they're also dense with intelligence. And so microbial metabolites made in the rhizosphere play a big, big role in plant growth and plant defense. So that's kind of a, there's a lot going on there, Ryan. And I would just, you know, urge people to do all they can to learn about the rhizosphere, because I really like what you said earlier, if you teach a farmer why, they'll figure out how. So I want every farmer to understand at least a little bit, you know, about what's going on in the rhizosphere and that to the extent that they, you know, we stop shoving monkey wrenches, so to speak, into that rhizosphere, then we get our plants, you know, growing just like they're supposed to. Love that. Great explanation and start for our audience uh, if they haven't already dug into learning about that. So thank you. Uh, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and, and bring it a little higher level. So uh, everything you're writing and talking about is about how we regenerate our land and our human health and how that's tied to it um, through these practices. Um, so big question for you guys. 
do you think we'll get there as a society to a point where these no- this knowledge and these practices are more mainstream? And if so, when? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I tend to wear an optimist hat on this issue by choice. Um, there are days when I'll wake up and go, no, we'll never get there. But um, I look back and go, you know, when we uh, when I wrote Dirt back, when was that? 2007, I think, when Ann and I first started thinking about talking about and working on these kind of issues. You'd go to farming conferences and, you know, nobody was talking about soil health. It just wasn't a thing that people were talking about. Sure, there were farmers who were really good at building soil health, but it wasn't a movement. Um, and you look at it today and there's a that huge, you know, the organic movement is healthy. The real organic movement is even healthier. Um, the regenerative agriculture movement is sort of starting to gain traction with many farmers and converting formerly conventional farmers into a, a different style of farmer that's much closer to organic. Um, and, you know, I, I take that is a sign of optimism. Um, you know, as a geologist, I have no illusions that the agricultural system is going to transform overnight. But could we do it in a couple decades? I think we could. I think we could do it by about the middle of this century. Um, but it's going to take some time because there's, you know, there's, it's very difficult to ask people who've been doing things for most of their life to, tr- to do them in a completely different way. Um, so you're going to see, you know, at the older end of the farmer spectrum, you're going to see some people adopting it. And some people have been, some of the early pioneers are, you know, are not that young anymore. They've done a really good job of transforming their land. But when I go around to universities and talk to uh, people about these kinds of issues, I'm really impressed by how enthused the younger generation is about adopting more soil friendly practices. And those are tomorrow's farmers. So if you're willing to think, uh, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years out to the 2030s, 40s and 50s, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of change in agriculture because it makes economic sense, it makes environmental sense, and it makes sense in terms of human health, in terms of realizing that agricultural policy is health policy, is one of the biggest levers we have to actually influence you know, public health around the world. And you look at, you know, we used in the 1950s in the U.S., we spent twice as much on, um, on food as we did on healthcare. Today, it's exactly the opposite. And so, you know, 80 years of cheap food has not made us healthier. Um, And we need to think about, you know, the challenge of not just feeding the world, but nourishing the world better. Um, And therein, I think, is a huge opportunity. I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, could I be being naive about, you know, the forces that are arrayed that will resist many of the changes, like, you know, using less fertilizer, using less agrochemicals, et cetera, you know, growing a wider variety of crops than concentrating on a few commodity crops? Yeah, there's some pretty serious entrenched interests who aren't going to be interested in seeing that change. My hope is that they end up like the buggy whip manufacturers. Change, change is an essential component of economic progress and human progress. And I think that the idea of reinvesting in the fertility of our agricultural land through adopting more soil-friendly practices is an idea that time has come. And you know, we only have this century to really get it right, I think. And before the lessons of the dirt book come back to haunt us in the 22nd century. So I'm an optimist, but it's partly by choice. Yeah. The, and the only thing I would add to that, that's, that's we really have on our side when it comes to soil and soil health and, and getting to where we want, I think all of us want farming and food and, and human health to be is that because this biological bazaar is so active and it is so capable, you can get changes in the soil through changing your practices in really short order, 
right? It's not, it's not like putting the human being on a diet and it's like, oh yeah, I lost 20 pounds over 49 months. You know, I mean, that is not the case with the soil at all. Once we stop um, the harm and the perturbation, biology can be really, really responsive. And I always kind of say it like this, you know, if we give nature just half a chance, just half a chance, things can get back up and running. And then that's when farmers can begin to see that, oh, you know, my yields are not, you know, in the tank, like everybody told me they would be, I've been gradually seeing that they're coming back to normal, certainly spending, you know, far less on inputs. And these days, just with the the economic ripple effect of the pandemic, I think is going to be with us for quite some time. And we really don't thoroughly understand, you know, the directions and the whys to all of that, except to say that we get some really strange price swings and things like fertilizer and, you know, what's next, tennis shoes and garden hoses. I, I don't know what, but the minute you're paying, you know, three to four to five times more for something that used to be so to speak, part of your daily diet, you all of a sudden start thinking, I can't do this anymore. This is bankrupting me. So I don't, I don't like to, um, you know, I don't like to pay more for anything just like the next person. But at the same time, it's a really powerful motivating factor to think, wow, maybe I should consider, you know, thinking differently and then doing things differently. So the flip side you know, the flip side of the pandemic and everything that has happened is that sometimes there's a way of doing things differently that is better than how we're doing it now. And so combine that with how quickly soil can recover. And I, I'm optimistic too. Well, let's, uh, let's play off that optimism and let's say uh, people listen to this podcast and reading your book. And by the way, everybody should read this book, uh, whether you're a farmer or not. Um, they listen and they're like, yep, I'm going to do things differently and I'm going to change. And, and one of the things, you know, then it's like, now what? Right. And that's one of the, you know, as we kind of wrap up uh, this interview, that's one of the things I wanted to kind of talk to you guys about is, you know, I love the fact that you guys went down this journey, you went into this research and you came out and you're still optimistic. Right. And that's uh, that's pretty amazing. So knowing that most farmers and ranchers won't do all the research you did or have the time or energy or, or willingness to do it, what sh where should they learn from and kind of where do you see, uh, where, what stops along the way do you feel like would be essential for them to, uh, or essential people to learn from as well? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the first, uh, I like to start with the why, and that's where I think the books come in, in terms of motivation on why. Um, a lot of the motivation I saw in farming communities that had made a lot of progress towards, towards shifting to a more soil-friendly, uh, soil-building style of agriculture came from, you know, examples of early farmers who adopted and changed things, and then were teaching others. And so there's a, a, a big and growing network of farmers that do demonstration farms uh, um, that have, you know, farm days where they bring people, their uh, uh, colleagues in to actually, you know, look at what they're doing on their farm. And those look like to me, like they're very powerful means to actually um, uh, seed change in the sense that it's one thing for, you know, a writer or an academic to parachute onto a farm and go, hey, you should do things this way. <laughs> Um, it's a whole nother way to actually see, you know, a real live operating profitable farm next door that's doing something differently and is weathering the economic times better than perhaps your farm. Um, so 
one of the most powerful things I think farmers who are interested in going more soil friendly or regenerative style would be to look at find farmers in their area who have already done it and been doing it for a while, who've made the mistakes, who figured out what the tricks are to actually get it to work in your region. All the ones that we've interviewed were happy to talk about it. They didn't have any secrets. They were kind of, you know, mystified about how many of their conventional neighbors were just not interested in their practices, whether they were organic farmers or regenerative farmers or whatever label the new farmers were using. Um, they were confused about why, you know, when their stuff was working so well, that conventional farmers weren't, you know, sort of crawling over the fence line to figure out, well, what are you doing? Uh, so I think there's a reservoir of, of interest and goodwill in terms of sharing information. There's not a lot of secrets. Um, so, and the other thing that I think is actually key to farmers who are thinking about adopting more uh, um, a new style of practices, and and for me this would apply, you know, whatever style they're thinking of going to, is start with the corner of the farm. Just, you know, start experimenting. You know, don't don't bet the entire farm on doing something completely new all at once. Um, start with start with a piece. See, start experimenting. See what works. And if you like the way that it's in enhancing your soil, um, you know, then ex expand it and keep it going. Um, that's where that that curiosity and tinkering are, are a powerful combination. Yeah, and I, I think no matter what you do for um, a livelihood, as soon as you sort of step out of your own kind of comfort zone, as much as we human beings hate to do that. There's also a point at which when you cross out of there and you start seeing new things and you start learning new things, it actually becomes exciting to leave that comfort zone. And, and I know farmers are busy. We're all super busy. But seeing what other farmers are doing is, I think, really one of the best ways for, uh, for farmers to figure out the how-to and the, the innovation end of things. You know, I, I can I can talk about, you know, something I may have seen in, you know, I don't know, Illinois or Kentucky or something just to say this, the vegetable farmers in California or Connecticut. But ultimately, that's that's only sort of, you know, dangling something in front of them and saying, hey, I bet there's something like this happening much, much closer to your farm and go out and find out what that is and see what works and what doesn't. And the cool thing about changing practices is not all the time, but a lot of the times you'll get feedback right away. Like that was a really bad idea. And, <laughs> or you'll get feedback. Oh, wow. That was a really good idea. And so then you can kind of navigate your way to more of this, less of that. And I think that's really exciting um, as well. Love that. So I hear tips out there for our audience. Uh, know the why and your books can help with that. Uh, learn from your peers and start with a small piece of land. And then lastly, from Anne, stepping outside of your comfort zone can be exciting. And what I hear there, I think, is probably pretty rewarding, too. Um, so love those. Uh, last question for you all. Uh, can you tell us quickly where we can find your book? Uh, sure. We, we, have, uh, we have a website. Um, uh, that is uh, dig2grow.com, dig the number two, grow.com. And you can find the brief descriptions of all our books on the website. Uh, you can contact us if you have questions about them. In terms of actually getting the books, uh, you know, your favorite independent local bookstore or your favorite large international marketing mega megalith, uh, Amazon, or you could buy them from Acres because I believe, if I recall, there's some type of um, a discount that they get by buying them through Acres. So clearly your best choice is to get it through <laughs> Acres. 
Absolutely. And I'll mention that uh, real quick. If you use the code POD22, that's POD22 at uh, our website, acresusa.com, you'll be able to save 10% off the book uh, whenever you get a chance to get around to order it. But order it today, yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, it was so wonderful to speak to you both today. We are looking forward uh, to everybody reading your book and to what might come next as well. Yeah, well, thank you. It's a, we're thrilled that this book is done and we're still trying to figure out what comes next uh, as we recover from getting this one completed. But it's been a pleasure to talk to you and many thanks for the opportunity to um, engage with your audience. Yeah, love the love the Acres audience. Oh, yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, David and Anne had joined us for a podcast, uh, boy, three or four years ago, and a lot has happened since they joined us last. So we really appreciate catching up with them today. David, Anne, best of luck with your book sales. We hope uh, it takes off and you guys go everywhere. Uh, in the meantime, uh, find them at the EcoAg Conference this December. Also, go to bookstore.acresusa.com. Find their book, What's Your Food Ate? Again, that's bookstore.acresusa.com. What's Your Food Ate? Use the code POD22. Again, that's P-O-D-22 uh, at the website, bookstore.acresusa.com, and you'll save 10% on their book. That's money in your pocket. Thank you again for listening today. Thank you for Sarah Day Levesque for co-hosting today, and we hope all of you guys have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Thank you.